0: If you understand the landscape, then it's much easier for you to to understand the feel and essentially what the company is capable of moving forward with. On top of that, there are a number of metrics that you can use to kind of measure the possibility of success in that market.
1: Hi everyone, you're listening to Scaling DevTools, the show that investigates how DevTools go from zero to one. I'm joined today by Carl Clement, who is the founder of Code Owners, which is a really innovative new tool that helps you understand who owns what part of your code. Carl, thanks so much for joining today.
0: Absolutely, it's been a pleasure, thank you. Uh,
1: Carl, could you tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about code owners?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, So my name is Carl and uh, obviously I'm uh, a engineered focused COO, which is an odd title I guess to do, Uh, but my background is actually in commerce. And I taught myself how to engineer when I was about 14 and kind of focused on that. Ended up really, really loving the world of engineering and uh, started building products and basically came to this point where I met my co-founders. We've worked together for quite some time. Uh, We also worked in venture capital for a while Uh, from venture capital, moved on to building a consulting firm and then brought us today to, which is uh, we've built a number of products, but one considering called Codex, which we've raised capital for. uh, And now we built another product called Code Owners.
1: Amazing. And could you tell us a bit about Code Owners?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, Code Owners is essentially a platform that allows you to map the knowledge of your engineering on top of your engineering team. Now, I guess that sounds a little bit um, eccentric, but the point here is to understand the ownership and the knowledge across your code base. Uh, when it comes to who's contributing and who's uh, developed the code,
1: really, really cool. Um, and could you give us like some examples of like how this kind of helps uh, teams that use code owners?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the the goal here is to get a an observable view of what the actual ownership is of your uh, engineering organization. So by installing the tool, you can understand who's contributed to the code base, at what percentages, and also kind of see the distribution. Um, a good example of an output of that is uh, a code owner's file that you'd find in a GitHub repo. Basically, you can have a sense of responsibility over a section of code. Could be within a repository or across a system. Uh, could be anywhere, even a service catalog. But essentially, the ownership is a level of responsibility of an engineer or an engineering team uh, that can properly manage that piece
1: yeah that makes sense and i've never worked in like a big engineering organization but i imagine there are times when people get woken up by their beeper and then they've got to find like everything's not working and they've got to find the person to wake up and <laughs> fix it or
0: yeah yeah many teams will have incidents happen you know 60 to 60 to 100 incidents a week and then some of them will have you know 60 to 100 in a month or depends on varying degrees but typically they'll use some sort of incident management tool uh, to ping some on-call rotations to be able to find the right person and you know our goal is to really clarify that really find the exact person that has both the level of responsibility but also the best understanding the best knowledge of the code
1: yeah that's really really cool and one of the things this kind of like brings us to a bit is a lot of the guests that we have on are kind of you know might be doing like uh, the guys from Clerk Dev who are like kind of reinventing uh, Orf, or you know someone that's got a great new code editor, or, but and with those there's kind of an understood category tool that someone's already using, and I think what's interesting and challenging probably for code owners is that you've got this new kind of category that people maybe aren't even aware that they need yet. Um, So I wondered how that's been and like what the process of kind of explaining why people need code owners has been.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an education. Being able to explain what code ownership, its value, as well as just general engineering ownership uh, is is an extra level because you you have to assume certain functions and also allow engineers and engineering teams to follow their own process. But as it is today, uh, engineers are served in some sort of hierarchical fashion and there is responsibility across the team. Whether you know, you're know you working on a new service or a new code base or a new repository, you will have a team on that repository working and there's a level of responsibility and shared ownership, but it's not necessarily monitored or managed. Um, typically that'll be just spread out in a general fashion. Like, you join a Slack group and ping an engineer that you think knows the best, or potentially it's that person that, you know, has all the answers. You typically will message that person. Well, our goal is to simplify and organize that level uh, to be able to know the, the level of ownership, but also the level of knowledge across the org. Who knows best, who has responsibility here. And, you know, what are the stakeholders of this piece of code?
1: Yeah, it's really cool. And I can imagine like there's, do you solve that kind of like bus factor, um, or like alert them that there's just this one person that just does everything?
0: Yeah, we uh, we definitely added. Uh, we're working on adding that as a specific metric as well. So if there is a an individual or a team that is too essential to the organization, in this case, the bus factor is like very high, um, which is you know a very large concern with a lot of organizations, especially if. Uh, you have an early founder or potentially an early founding engineer that has a ton of implication within the code base, it it becomes very difficult to manage that. But not just that, it's distributing that knowledge from that one person to the rest of the team. Uh, The buzz factor is very
1: high. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, maybe Elon Musk would have really wanted code owners when they were... (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. We actually received a lot of messages when it came up with the, uh, the actual Twitter debacle in this case, because, you know, as soon as all these engineers, you know, were now no longer at the organization, it's difficult to understand who knows what, uh, who has the answers. And then especially when you're just as a communicational nightmare trying to figure this out.
1: Yeah. Really, really interesting. And how do you kind of, um, think about your kind of go-to-market when you've got to go through this kind of like maybe education type phase and probably targeting big companies yeah
0: yeah the the go-to-market is really exciting to be honest because there is a natural kind of sandwich effect that happens which is the product led growth motion is trying to create a valuable tool to allow the engineers to essentially do their job better right allow them to have an easier time to complete what they need to complete in a day. But at the same time, the value prop really goes towards a top-down type motion where you have to communicate with a large organization the value that they will receive in order to implement this type of ownership and responsibility across the org. So that value is then provided to a higher-up group, which is maybe a VP of engineering, potentially engineering managers, uh, even CTOs. But at the same time, the operational buyer, if you will, is actual engineers, DevOps, uh, DevOps engineers that are implementing and one group in particular that that we seem to be speaking a lot with are platform engineers, which is an emerging group type. But in this case, platform engineers are typically responsible of implementing services exactly like this to allow their engineering teams to just be able to, you know, handle all their workload as easily as possible.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And so you are finding that there are people that are doing this on a, you know, regular, repeating Absolutely. basis. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's um, quite a few people. It, it revolves, it changes quite a bit, but there's certain cases where it could be a staff engineer or it could be a DevOps engineer or a platform engineer. But in this case, they'd be implementing tools specifically to enable the rest of their team uh, these people are thinking about this on a daily basis. It may not necessarily be code ownership, it might not necessarily be service ownership, uh, but they're definitely thinking of service catalogs and how do they organize everything together. It's really just a big, intricate puzzle uh, to organize an engineering team to be as efficient as possible.
1: Interesting. And then when you kind of have identified um, platform engineers as being people that are really thinking about this, how do you find the platform engineers are thinking about it and how do you reach them
0: great question <laughs> there's a number of places you can find platform engineers but in general it's joining the community and really just having conversations with people in the right place uh, there is a number of slack channels with platform engineers there's also groups online you can find them on reddit uh, there's also just you know the general top down type behavior which you can you know find uh, people by prospecting directly into like LinkedIn or other tooling and find people with the, either the position of platform engineer or organizations that are hiring in platform engineering. Uh, that's quite interesting because it shows uh, a willingness to not necessarily invest, but a willingness to adopt different technologies in order to make their engineering team better. Uh, a good example of that is organizations organizations that want to shift left uh, with, you know, some of their, their tooling, or they want to, um, essentially just improve developer experience as a whole. And, uh, those organizations are typically more than likely to have a platform engineer or a DevOps engineer that's willing to install tools to make their team more efficient.
1: Interesting. And how, like when, when there's this kind of like general sense that they should improve, um, developer experience, for instance, what do they, what are they kind of looking for?
0: Yeah, there's a number of factors, but what we've seen so far is typically Dora metrics seem to be quite a important guiding principle, I guess, in this case, where they want to include tooling that will help their team just be more effective. Uh, a very large one of those is uh, MTTR, which is mean time to resolution. And in this case, uh, a good example of that is when you're resolving incidents is just being able to resolve the incident as quickly as possible. Now, if developer tooling, such as um, either you know incident response management or even like code owners, for example, to help you resolve the incident faster, that is an important metric to be able to work your way back and understand whether or not those tools are important. So, to a to a manager or say a CTO or um, or VP of engineering, that number or that metric allows them to really identify the return on investment when you're trying to communicate the value of your tool that's where the value is tied
1: interesting so is that how quickly they resolve and show that you're a part of that um, essentially and you mentioned dora could you explain what dora is
0: yeah without going too far into detail uh dora metrics is a set of metrics that involves the developer so if you were to i definitely recommend going down the rabbit hole of googling this uh, but Google also has a great explainer about the different uh, Dora metrics. And typically they would essentially it's uh, developer efficiency. So you have a, a number of metrics there that allow you to kind of measure how well your organization is doing. Uh, Google also has benchmarks for their engineering team to give you an idea and you can have, kind of have comparables. Uh, it's different for every organization, obviously because a larger org with more pods, more engineers, it kind of gets messy. Which is why, you know, and implementing these developer experience-based tools will help you just kind of monitor that and get a little closer to um, a stable benchmark, at least whatever the market is doing.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, and because I I've always thought about like, how do I know if a developer team is doing a good job? And in my I always worked in startups, and I never came up with any. Or heard of any like metric that i felt would have really encapsulated that we were doing a good job um and i wonder if like when you look at these kind of metrics and stuff is it something that you're like kind of keen to go along with and and focus in on or is it like you know you at the point of like well there are other things like how are you kind of thinking about that (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's an interesting problem. I think from an organization to organization, it's very different because a benchmark could be great when you're comparing, say, an enterprise to an enterprise in the same vertical, in the same market. Uh, in this case, it's very different if your product is entirely engineering focused and the output of your product is you know, top notch. It's also the most important factor. That is, it plays a very big part. So your door metrics are a lot more important. Meanwhile, if you have a product that's doing quite well and maybe developer pace is a little slower and your velocity is slower, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad team or a you know bad. Uh, like, for example, if your mean time to resolution is lower, but you don't seem to have as many incidents and they're less critical, that doesn't seem to matter quite as much. So it really depends on the business. It depends on you know the product that you're selling. But uh, some organizations are definitely more focused on door metrics just to, as a good measure. But I think the benchmark, realistically, your goal should just be to improve, right? Whatever metric that is, just improve your numbers as you go, as you implement new tooling. If it's going down or I guess down is a generalized statement, but if it's getting worse, um, that's definitely not a good thing.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's an interesting area. There's not, uh, I I think you might be one of the first that we've had that's very like kind of driven by this like improving developer experience. And one of the um, tools that we spoke with offline is Backstage and how you've been kind of like looking at the Backstage community. And uh, yeah, Backstage is relatively new to me. So I'm kind of curious about like what Backstage is and how you've been kind of like working with that initiative from a lot of companies.
0: Yeah. Backstage is quite interesting because it's grand purpose to implementation is essentially improving developer experience, but there are a number of factors that it it does improve once you've fully adopted the technology And, and Backstage itself is an open source library from Spotify, uh, essentially allowing you to create a developer hub, if you will, um, you can use it for a number of things, but essentially the goal of it is just to gather all the engineering knowledge in like one place. So that could be documentation. That could also be, you know, separating your organization or your, your code into services and different pieces. And it really maps things out to for you to understand um, what's involved in the software, right? If you have a big software company, you have a lot of moving pieces, a lot of services, you have infrastructure as well. That's laid on top of that. It's very difficult to manage and to understand, you know, where everything is. And this kind of centralizes everything. It is very customizable as well, which is, you know, allows you to pipe in any other information you have there, including ourselves. We've, we're, we've built a plugin to implement code owners data directly into backstage because some of that ownership information is important to you know the group, but you can, essentially pipe in whatever information you want into Backstage just to improve that experience.
1: Yeah, it's a, and it's a really kind of smart strategy, I think, to like be uh, kind of joining like an existing like trend movement and, and kind of making that better as well. And how, how have you kind of used Backstage's growth as like a driver for yourselves?
0: Well, it's been an interesting conversation with some companies uh, backstage Implementation is essentially a signal that a company is willing to invest in the organization, but the developer experience as a whole, uh, which is great because for us, it gives us a signal that there is some general understanding as well for the tooling, rather than your run the mill engineering team that just, you know, write code, ship code, write code, ship code. There's a lot of moving pieces and the larger your company grows, especially mid-market or enterprise companies, there's the engineering team is vast, massive companies that have different groups and pods and different verticals uh, within an organization. And it's almost impossible to understand the full spectrum. That's why, in, in theory, if you're implementing backstage, you have an understanding that you know things need to be optimized, things need to be organized Um and there's a level of responsibility across the org, which really helped us understand that someone who is implementing backstage is also curious about ownership, curious about team responsibility. And it kind of goes hand in hand in this case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a really, really smart way to like, think of like visible ways that you could determine the mindset, which is often very hard to kind of understand of different companies.
0: Mm, absolutely. And that's where. The, the product-led growth type motion typically happens, especially for been marketed enterprise, you have to work with existing tooling that is familiar to the group, right? If, if an engineer is familiar with the tool, it then helps them understand, there might be a bit of cognitive bias there, but it's just a little bit of familiarity makes it feel a lot more palatable.
1: Yeah, 100%, like none of us want to, do anything different right <laughs> unless we're <laughs> dragged kicking and screaming or, or it's so good that we just have to do something new mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's uh that's really that's a g- really good approach and carl you mentioned uh, briefly that you had like a kind of a vc um stint before uh, code owners um as well as running your own business and stuff um could you tell us a bit about like what you've brought, um, from being on that side of the table to, uh, to now founding your own thing.
0: Absolutely. I think that the interesting piece with, uh, my experience with venture capital is that many organizations, typically when you're building a product and you're putting it into market, you're always thinking of a scratch your own itch type behavior, or potentially it's just found, you found opportunity within a specific company, or, you know, it could just be a eureka moment where you've notice a gap or some sort of opportunity in market. And the venture capital side essentially teaches you to understand the global system around it more so than the actual execution, of the product. Uh, now, when you're doing venture investing, the interesting thing is there are a number of factors that make you make that decision and move forward. But one of them is understanding the landscape. And if you understand the landscape, then it's much easier for you to, un- to understand the feel and essentially what the company is capable of moving forward with. Um, on top of that, there are a number of metrics that you can use to kind of measure the possibility uh, of success in that market. And if you're seeing other companies in the same landscape, you have a better understanding of what's possible and also your competition. So, if you're building a product, you're very myopic. You're looking at this one problem in this one place, trying to understand it and then move forward. But you don't generally have as good of an understanding of the market and who's at play here, who are the main acquirers, who are the the big moving pieces. And uh, basically, the venture capitalist allows you to kind of figure out those moving pieces and really understand the market, understand how products are moving, what are the tailwinds that are going to pull your product forward? Um, you know, AI most recently is definitely one of those tailwinds where if you learn to work with AI or implement generative AI in any way, shape or form, it'll help you move forward. And that venture capital I kind of allows you to pick and choose and understand the market.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And as someone that's always like thinking of ideas and trying to come up with my own dev tools, um, could you give any examples or or like even speaking about code owners about how you thought about it when you were kind of like evaluating whether you wanted to throw yourself behind this, uh, this direction?
0: Absolutely. Our original product was, uh, was codex, which allowed, you know, to, to document as you code, which was an interesting piece and it's a necessary piece, but that's when we started to see opportunities in other places where code ownership and code responsibility was the root cause. And then at that point, we were able to identify different people working in the same observability space. And in this case, when you start seeing observability, you start seeing big players like uh, Datadog or Splunk or big, big players that have been in the market for years, really, really understanding this and their move towards observability as a whole is interesting because it, allows you to see what larger companies, like enterprise, uh, mid-market, are really looking for. They're looking for a general understanding of the full spectrum. Like, what, what is going on in my organization? What is going on in my system? And that was an interesting piece because from a code ownership standpoint, we saw an opportunity, but also a need for a sense of responsibility and a sense of ownership and understanding of what your engineer, engineering team is building. Right. Again, with, you know, same thing with tailwinds for AI, for example, there's a lot of things we weren't able to do in the past. You couldn't necessarily look at a code base and understand exactly how it was built without going through every little Git commit and really understanding like, OK, this person added this. They added this code here and here and here, which gave us this big product. But now with certain technologies, we could figure out a lot of things. You can work your way back and understand the history, understand the observability of your system. Mm,
1: interesting. So it's like you're kind of the that like the production side of things, like external face. Like their Datadog and stuff is showing you how it's running and like that errors and stuff like that. And you're more like how how is it built? Who built it? Sort of.
0: Yeah, it essentially validates your market position, if you will, and it validates the direction in this case, a lot of large players are going into this space and it allows you to understand that, okay, if they're going to this space, then that means that there's importance here. And my solution in particular, solves a pain point in this space, right? If you were building a particular product in a space that no one is, there is a chance that it works out, but you are also reducing your odds of understanding, uh, especially from a B2B standpoint. If you're selling a consumer product and it's just a wow effect, you know, and no one's ever heard of it before, but you go and build this, present it to the market. Everyone loves it because it's just the coolest thing since sliced bread. That's a different perspective than from a B2B standpoint. B2B, it has to map directly to something they're currently doing or they need to do in order for you to have a valuable product. If they aren't doing it or they don't intend to do it, then there's no value tied to it. And it's very difficult for them to calculate the ROI on a product
1: yeah i think it's a really really important point um yeah Yeah. is there like um direct competitors and stuff for code owners
0: i don't want to speak too quickly but not (laughs) right now yeah um the interesting thing is i'd say the most direct competitor is just an engineering organization with proper organization uh if you have a proper you know, hierarchical pattern. You can understand your company. Small pods can communicate effectively together and really, you know, keep moving. But the realistic situation here is that that's, that, that's impossible to maintain. You can, if you have a really small org, if you're in the same room, you know, like even our on our team, uh, as we grow, we're having difficulties understanding who did what, who's responsible for what, who knows what.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's, uh, I think that's the challenge of a lot of dev tools. Anyway, if even, even an off, right. I think everyone's the, the main competitor is just people doing it themselves. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Carl, I think we're coming to the end of the time. So I wondered if you've got any kind of key takeaways that you would advise either yourself a few years ago or someone else, uh, who's maybe doing something slightly different to you.
0: Absolutely. My biggest biggest recommendation for anyone is to not necessarily focus on the distribution portion of the method you're getting to market. But my biggest advice would be to focus on your ICP, that group, that person that you're trying to go and talk to. Really make sure to spend the most time that you can in discovery with those people uh, because really understanding their needs and what they're willing to work with and what are their pain points really matter. Right. You might be the entire time you might be talking to, say, a site reliability engineer, and you think that this person is the right person for the problem, but this person never really resonates with the problem. And then you go and speak to a different person, say a platform engineer in our case, and then it's, per, it's a perfect match, right? There are some situations where you need to understand the person you're selling to, both whether that's um, an operational buyer, or it could potentially be just like an economic buyer. So someone who's Willing to, willing to write the check, uh, you know, hand over the credit card, but you have to understand those people in order to best fit the, the value, right? You have to be fixing a problem if you want someone to pay for it.
1: Great. Thank you, Carl. Um, and if people want to learn more about code owners or about Carl, where can they learn more? Uh,
0: definitely check out codeowners.com. Um, we're building the platform It's working we're changing it constantly. So please do check in and my, you can check out my personal Twitter. It's, uh, K A R L C L E M E N T Carl Clement. Um, really appreciate it.
1: Amazing. Thanks Carl. And thanks for joining us and, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Okay. I think I thanked you twice there, Carl, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Thank you, Jack.